Hello and welcome. I'm Roger Ream, and this is the Liberty and Leadership Podcast, a conversation with TFAS alumni, supporters, faculty, and friends who are making a real impact in public policy, business, philanthropy, law, and journalism. Today I'm joined by a very special guest, Benjamin Hall, a correspondent for the Fox News Channel and our 2023 Kenneth Y. Tomlinson Award winner for Courageous Journalism. Ben is a seasoned reporter on foreign affairs and wars, having reported from Ukraine, Syria, Iraq, Afghanistan, Somalia, and many other hotspots around the globe. He's interviewed world leaders, soldiers on the battlefield, and survivors of torture, imprisonment, and genocide. He also recently wrote Saved, a war reporter's mission to make it home, which recounts the horrific missile attack that killed several of Benjamin's colleagues and began an ordeal of survival, reconstruction, healing, and transformation that can only be described as, well, there really are no words to describe it. Benjamin Hall is a hero for going where few would choose to go to provide us, the public, with the light of truth from war zones. It's a privilege to have Ben with us today, days before we honor him with our Ken Tomlinson Award for Courage and Journalism. Please note that this episode of Liberty and Leadership will air following our dinner. Ben, thank you so much for joining me today. Hey, what a pleasure to be here. Thank you for inviting me. I think the first thing I can simply say is, wow. I mean, I your book that you've written and the remarkable life you've lived is really something. You've you've packed so much into your 40 years. I'll call it adventure, uh, but uh, it's it's just you've done a masterful job in writing this book, and it really literally was one I couldn't put down. Uh, you tell the account of your survival after a Russian missile attack in Ukraine, uh, but also you capture the larger story about courageous journalism and what it takes to be a reporter. Uh, who travels the world to go into war zones. Uh, I really, your book is a tale of determination, heroism, persistence, love, self-discovery, and transformation. Uh, you're, you're so deserving of our honor, and we're pleased that you're coming to New York to receive this award. Uh, you, share the role, you share the story, rather, of colleagues of yours who've taken great risks to report uh, around, from around the world. Uh, so if I may, let's start our conversation by me asking you to share what it was that motivated you to pursue a career in journalism, because you certainly didn't take a traditional path. Uh, the story you tell of finding Rick Findler, I think it was, and heading overseas uh, to do freelancing in conflict zones was quite something. Could you talk a little bit about that? I actually think it was as a child, first of all. I was fascinated with conflict. You know, my father um, was a child during the Second World War, and he was in a Japanese prison camp from the ages of about eight till 12. And his parents were killed by the Japanese, and he, the family was torn apart. And it was a big part of my upbringing, talking to my father. And he went to the U.S., and he served in the U.S. military and career. And war had been something that we all talked about and we watched war movies all the time. And so I think that I grew up and I went to college and at the back of my mind was always this idea of, first of all, that we have it so lucky, but we're only so lucky because of the sacrifices of those who go out 
you know, to make the world better. And so almost as soon as I left college, first of all, I knew I wanted to tell stories. I found people amazing. And I actually went to LA for about a year. I thought I wanted to be in film and I just found it so vacuous. And I said, I don't want to make movies anymore. It's not real. I need to speak to people. And then soon after that, I took a flight to Iraq with Rick Findler. And I didn't, wasn't a journalist. I'd written for some college papers and I'd, I'd done a little bit of work, but I knew I just needed to start. And I, we went out there. We didn't know who we were going to write for, the stories we were going to tell. And we just started writing and pitching and freelancing and sending in to everyone. And we did that for quite a few years. And so I think what really got me onto it was this fascination with conflict and a sense of adventure. I wanted to go and experience amazing things. And I've never denied that what I do is really exciting and great. But the thing about covering war is it pulls you in. You start to see stories terrible stories, some of the most incredibly brave and courageous stories. And you see these up close every day. And I just found it gripping. And there wasn't anything else I wanted to do after a few years because A, did I find the stories incredible, but I also found it to be incredibly important. And I remember some of the first few articles I wrote for some of the bigger newspapers, the Sunday Times, the New York Times, I started to see people talking about the stories I was writing. And I started to realize that my work has an impact. It changes people's views. It makes people want to make the world a better place. And so not only did I have the adventure and the excitement and the fascination for conflict, I started to realize how important journalism is as well. And honestly, there hasn't been a day in the last 15 years that I have regretted what I do because I think I had the best job in the world. And look, like eventually we will talk about what happened to me, but people ask me often, Considering the injuries you have, the prosthetics you are on, would you have changed your career? Would you have gone back and done it again? And I always say every single time, absolutely, absolutely I would. You write in your book about narrow escapes you had in in Libya, Somalia, Syria, even Haiti and elsewhere. Many times you had guns pointed at you uh, by soldiers and others, rebels who, and you didn't know what might happen. You, I think you said you were hit with shotgun pellets by riot police in Egypt. Uh, you note that when you were young, you had the natural feeling that we all have, I guess, as young people of invincibility. Mm. Uh, is that a feeling you think is necessary to pursue the kinds of stories that you pursued as a journalist? Yeah, it's about finding a real balance between, I was going to say bravado. It's not bravado, but You've got to want to go somewhere. You've got to be willing to do it. You've got to face your fears in the face. And, and even if it's something, uh, you know, makes you feel fear, you've got to be able to push through because you understand why you're doing it. But, um, yeah, I, 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 I just think that it's something that you, you have to want to do. Absolutely. And I think that's what all of our colleagues have done. Um, so, yes, I, I set off for, for a whole lot of different reasons, yeah. Putting aside for a minute the Russian war in Ukraine, uh, of the reporting missions you've done prior to that, which ones do you think had the largest impact on you? Yeah, it's an interesting question. I mean, the answer is different in, for, in, for different reasons. So, for example, you know, the story that really I sort of um, got me to the next level of my career was writing about ISIS. You know, and I was a freelancer and I was in and out of Syria and Iraq and I was close to them. And I was one of the only journalists to have spoken to some of ISIS members, people who had left ISIS. I wrote a book on ISIS and kind of got me into Fox. And so I spent a lot of time in Syria covering them and in Iraq. And I think that's the story that I really found something that I was absolutely fascinated by. And it, it was really was a story of good versus evil. I mean, you had the worst terror group versus, you know, the people who they, whose lives they were destroying. And 
So I think Syria was amazing and it was some of the most adventurous stories I've done. You know, we crossed deep into Syria behind enemy lines up to our necks in, in water at the middle of the night, carrying our gear. You know, we, we, we took horses across mountains. We lived in caves for a while. We saw some of the very first attacks on civilians that the Assad uh, troops were carrying out. And so I think that I always say that Syria was one of the most powerful stories in some sense. And, and it's also one of these countries where you are totally blown away by the courage of people. And we were, you know, the kindness of people letting you into their own homes when in some cases the regime was looking for us and they would risk their own lives to help us and save us. And so I'm just torn between the generosity of these people versus the, you know, the evil on the other side. And so I would say Syria, but I would say as a sense of what changed me in terms of some of the, the physical things I've seen is Somalia. Like Somalia was one of the worst things I've seen. And I was with uh, Ugandan special forces in Mogadishu, actually embedded with them. And uh, Al-Shabaab had taken over the parliament building. But what I saw then was a, was a, the Ugandan special forces went into the parliament building and they butchered those guys. I mean, it was, it was some of the most up-close, violent and really bloody things. And that changed me. So that wasn't like the inspiring story like Syria was. That was a moment that I came back and for the first time ever, I realized I, I, I was a different person in a sense. So every story changes you in a different way. Every story you meet someone whose life is going to be totally changed. And each one of those stays with you in a little way. Um, so it's a, they've all been amazing. They've all been so different and uh, all been so fascinating. You talk in your book, I mean, you recount all of these in, in, in great uh, descriptive detail. You talk about, you know, getting stuck for a, few, a little bit in barbed wire, trying to escape from Syria to Turkey and people who did take risks to help you along the way and all these conflicts. This question's in some sense a simple one, but I want to ask it. And that is, you know, why is it important for journalists to take these kinds of risks and go into conflicts and war zones to report information to the rest of us? No, I think journalism in itself is about knowledge. It's about knowing what's going wrong. So you can both evaluate your own life, but you can also push for it to, to change. Now, what happens in conflict is even harder to get out. I mean, it is essential that we know what's going on and it's essential that we understand it. Because look, I always look back to World War II and to some of the world the, the wars that went on. And I don't I'm not of this belief that we have finished with all the great wars. I'm constantly worried that we might end our way into another one. And of course, you look at China right now, you look at Ukraine and Russia, you look at Iran right now. Um, and I just think there is some real fear. And so that's why I think it's so important. I want everyone to see what's going on in conflict. And I, I want everyone to be aware that it, all the people who I, many of the people I've interviewed, thought at some point in the last 15 years that their life was better and that the, their country was changing. And I can't tell you how many people are just so surprised who say, wow, 20 years ago, I was living a wonderful life in a country that I thought was peaceful and moving forward. And here we are in some of the worst conflict you've seen. And so I just want people to remember that we're A, so lucky to have peace, but B, we've got to work at that peace. And we work at that peace by seeing what's going on around the world. And we have to learn the mis from the mistakes and we have to learn from the things we do right. And only by seeing it um, can you can you really do that. Now, uh, yeah. Your book covers the events on the morning of March 14th, 2022, when you and two of your colleagues went to the village of Aranka, Ukraine, to film a story. Uh, that's when uh, Russian missiles uh, tragically took the lives of two of your colleagues and two soldiers and left you severely injured. Would you, would you mind recounting that experience when the second bomb landed near your car? 
Yeah, absolutely. Well, well, we were out in this town called Harenko. It had been largely destroyed by Russian shelling, um, and it was totally abandoned. We we had believed, we got an intel that the Russians are about 30 miles away, which I don't know if that sounds close or far. For us, that sounds like a long way away. You know, when you're used to being up close and sometimes, you know, 20 meters from these guys sometimes. So anyway, we filmed for the for the for a couple hours. We... I remember leaving thinking we've got a great story with some of the first journalists to come in here to see the devastation that Russian forces have carried out. But it was abandoned. As we were driving back in towards Kiev, we stopped at this abandoned checkpoint. And as the car slowed down, that first bomb came out of nowhere, just out of the sky. And I heard that whistle that I've heard numerous times before. And that first, we, we don't know if it was a shell or whether it was a drone, but um, that first bomb landed about 30 feet in front of the car. Immediately, they were called to reverse the car, reverse the car. And um, I'd say five, six to 10 seconds later, the second bomb hit right next to the car itself. And um, that blacked me out. And I know that I got the facial injuries at that point. And I was wearing body armor and a helmet, and they saved my life. But I know I got the shrapnel in the eye, and I know that I got the big shrapnel in my, in my, my neck. And I was totally out cold. And I was in this black place, no sound, all quiet. And and I saw my daughter. My, I physically saw my daughter right in front of me, in 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 my in my head. And um, and she just said to me, she said, "Daddy, you've got to get out of the car. You've you've got to get out of the car." And it brought me back. And I, you know, I you call it a miracle. I sometimes do. Something came to me, and I, you know, whether it's just your strong belief in family or whether it was something more spiritual, I don't know, but I came back and I opened my eyes and without even thinking, I grabbed for the door of the car and I was pulling my way and I got out of the car, one foot out of the car and the third bomb hit the car itself. That one threw me away and I was knocked out again. And the next thing I know, I wake up, I'm on fire. My right leg is gone. My left foot, uh, largely gone. I had it taken off eventually, but, um, and I was b- badly burnt and Pierre was alongside me. He was about 15 feet away. And immediately uh, I said, Pierre, and he said, don't move Russian drones, Russian drones. And so I didn't move for a bit, but I'm looking at myself. I'm I'm injured. I felt no pain at this point. And the adrenaline was kicking in. Um, no cell phone reception. All the telecoms were down. So I'm lying now. I'm badly injured. And I again say, Pierre, Pierre, I'm, I'm badly injured, Pierre. We've got to find a way out of here. And he said, it's the Russians. Don't move. Um, now Pierre didn't look injured. Pierre cut his femoral artery. You know, that was it in his groin and he bled out. But I was the one who, who was terribly injured is what I thought. But, um, I, I was there for about 40 minutes and eventually this other car came out of nowhere and it drove past our car, which was still burning and it didn't stop. It didn't see me. And I was waving at it. And, um, then I had to, I said, well, I never, I never thought I was going to die. Um, I just knew that I would do whatever it took to go home. And I think you find another strength when you're up against the wall like that. And I just said, okay, whatever it is, I'm going home. I'm going home to my children. And I started dragging myself up. And that car, that car went the wrong way just down the road. And it turned around. It was Ukrainian special forces. And they came back our direction. And at that point, I was a little bit further up. I had a handful of dirt ready. And I threw it at the car. And they saw me. And um, I remember there was this one guy jumping out, running across, grabbing me on the ground and pulling me. And it was the second that he started to pull me that all the pain kicked in right then. I don't know that moment that you were saved. And um, what I found out later is Pierre bled out. Uh, the guy checked him next and he was dead at that point. Um, and 
then at that point, I was taken into a small Ukrainian military hospital. And I think in, in a minute, I imagine we'll talk about how I was saved. But that's what happened on the day itself. That was the attack itself. And then a whole lot of things happened, you know, to, to try and get me out. Yeah, well, it, it's a remarkable story. Uh, the survival required so many people who could be described as heroes, even though much of what they were doing was part of the work they perform as part of their routine. But many went above and beyond uh, to to save you. And and uh, the story you tell in your book is is just remarkable. Uh, throughout the book, you know, my eyes were watering up as I read of. Uh, so many things that that transpired there. Uh, I guess you should comment on some of this. Uh, the Save Your Allies organization, which I wasn't familiar with, and the remarkable work they do, and you know, doctors at hospitals in Ukraine and Germany and in Texas. Uh, so please do uh, mention uh, how that whole process worked that you described so well in your book. Yeah, well, we had been missing for a few hours, and our security team you know, who were waiting back at a certain checkpoint. We didn't come back. And so the alert went out that we were gone. Straight away, the search was on for us. And then word came through the Ukrainians that there had been um, a, a, a network, a media team hit. Two people were dead. One was alive. But nobody knew who was alive, who had been killed, or where the survivor was. And amazingly, all the networks, because when you're really at the front like that, all the networks were staying at one hotel and everyone started getting out, you know, CNN, New York Times went out looking to try and find out. It's amazing how despite all of the um, rivalry you might have in, uh, on TV, we're all the same out there. So that started. And Jen Griffin, who is our Pentagon correspondent, she was in the Pentagon and she heard as well quite quickly that an, the Fo a Fox team they believe had been hit. And she picked up the phone straight away and she called Sarah Verado, who had Save Our Allies, an incredible nonprofit that basically goes in and saves people. It got hundreds of people out of Afghanistan when Afghanistan fell in 21 in the summer. Those guys went in to try and save people. They were outside the wire pulling people in. And some of these guys, they're all veterans. You know, someone was a, was it a, was it a couple of bronze stars? Was it Medal of Honor? Uh, was that a purple star? But, um, Amazing people. They came in and they were on the border in Poland. They were getting ready to help the Ukrainians as well. And they eventually found out that, that I was the one I was still alive, but it was very difficult to get me out because there was a 36-hour curfew, very few ways of getting in. They couldn't drive me out because they had a big piece of shrapnel in my neck the size of a matchbox and the roads were so bad. They couldn't fly me out because um, surface to our missiles, I couldn't bring planes in at all. Um, but they set off to find me. They didn't know how they were going to get me out, and they drove straight for a day and a half through all the Ukrainian um, checkpoints, and they finally tracked me down. And Jen Griffin had been speaking to John Kirby at the Pentagon, and uh, who had been talking to uh, Austin, you know, Secretary of Defense, and they said, look, no boots on the ground, no U.S. boots on the ground. We will not go and get him. We can't help. We'd like to. We can't help. But if you can get him to Poland, we will treat him. The military medicine will treat him, um, but we can't go any further. And so that was the main, that was the objective, is to get me out. And we didn't know how to get me out. And then somehow through the intelligence services networks, we found out that the Polish prime minister was on this first secret visit to see Zelensky, and his train was inside Kiev. And if we could get through during this curfew through the city, the Polish prime minister would evacuate me, and I could go out with him. And so 
we had this incredible nighttime journey where we went checkpoint to checkpoint where the Ukrainians thought we were Russians because there was no cars on the street. And they were coming into the ambulances, beating up all the ambulances and opening up all my wounds to check if we were serious that I was injured and why we were breaking curfew. On the very day, we thought Russia was going to invade uh, the city itself. And uh, no pain meds at that point. And I remember the pain just really, really creeping up. And um, But we made it. We made it through the city. We got to the Polish prime minister's train with minutes to spare. And um, then there was this I mean, 10-hour journey on the prime minister's train lying there, which was brutal. I mean, that was the moment where I think I had to find more strength. The moment where the pain kicked in, I had a traumatic brain injury. My mind wouldn't stop. I learned that Pierre was dead halfway through that train ride. And so I was in this place where I just had to say to myself, first of all, the people surrounding you, the people helping you save our allies and everyone else, they're the experts. And the last thing they need is someone complaining or moaning or saying it hurts. You just do what you got to do and you stay quiet and you find that extra level of strength. And look, I'm actually a firm believer that we have far more strength in us than we know we have. Because when I reached points that I didn't think I was capable of getting through, I would take a breath and I'd say, you've got this, you've got this, you've got a little bit more, just stay quiet, keep going. And I honestly felt that you could keep the pain down. You could try and pull it down. But it was a difficult journey, that. But it was when I finally, we crossed into Poland, been on that train for 10 brutal hours. And there was a Black Hawk and the 82nd Airborne were waiting for me. And I remember being lifted up and put on that, uh, that, that helicopter. And just this moment that I, that was, I felt I, I was saved. I was going home. I was going to see my family. Very emotional. Very, think back at it, yeah. I haven't mentioned uh, your family, and uh, they play an important role in this. Your wife, Alicia, uh, your daughters, Honor, Iris, and Hero, uh, were certainly there with you and motivating you. And and, as your book subtitle is, uh, Saved a War Reporter's Mission to Make at Home, that was, you know, driving you through that. I, I would, you know, you beautifully describe how the ordeal transformed you and note that for much of your career, I think you said you cultivated a duality within yourself. You had your career covering conflicts, and then you had had what I'll say is your normal life in London as a husband and father. Uh, I'll I'll repeat three beautiful girls since I have three girls myself. And uh, but I I would like to just read a passage, have you comment on it because it's it comes near the end, but it's it's wonderful. Uh, because after describing that duality, you say then came the attack which obliterated any distinction between my professional and personal selves. It was as if the bomb blew me into pieces, literally took me apart, before the heroes at Bamsi and CFI reassembled those pieces and put me back together. But exactly who was the person who emerged from the reconstruction? And then a little later you say, but what I can say without any doubt is that the person who emerged from the bombing, from the more than 20 surgeries, the continually painful rehab, the reconstituted whole Ben is a better, stronger, and more joyful person than he used to be. Life is about moving, changing, doing new things, and I find there are more things for me to do, more challenges for me to embrace now than ever before. I mean, that's remarkable that you can go through that ordeal and come out of it feeling 
so much like a stronger, better person. Could you could you comment on that? Yeah, look, I, I honestly, I think that the world is a better place now than from before the attack. And like the way I keep saying is that like one bad thing, one terrible, one horrible thing happened to me, and it happened to our, you know, my crew. But I can tell you a thousand great things that happened after that. The people who came out to help, the support I got, people who I didn't know, you know, stopping to help and encourage me, and that's what sticks with me. It's the goodness that I've seen. And, um, you know, you talk about that duality that I had before, and that, that was difficult because, you know, you'd, you'd go away suddenly. You know, the phone would ring. There'd been an attack somewhere around the world, terror attack, or there'd been something, a natural disaster or war, and you were there the next day. And you'd be there for three weeks. You'd be figuring it out. You'd be seeing some terrible things. And then you'd fly home again. And that evening, you'd be sitting at your kitchen table, eating a normal dinner with your family. And... I don't want to bring that home to my children either. So I don't want to talk about it much. And so I had these two parts and I don't, I think it was good to keep them divided. I know a lot of people who, but to each war correspondent to their own, I think everyone does it differently. But what happened after the attack was that the injuries, you know, they came home. The horror that I saw was, is now with me forever. It's with my family forever. It affects them forever. And, um, there are two ways of looking at difficult things that happen in life. One is to be held down by them, and the other two is jump and push right through them. And I'm someone in general who wants to do more than I did yesterday. Every single day, I just want to do more. And the same was true when I was learning to walk. If I walked five steps on one day, I was going to walk six steps the next. If I could lift this much weight, I was going to lift one more the next day. And life is incredible. And you said at the beginning that I'm such incredible career to travel the world to be at the front row of history to see it yourself and i think i'm a stronger person because of it i also think you find a new kind of strength when you are so up against the wall you don't know what else to do and that's what happened to me and i think that you have to find that level and that's why i feel not only amazed by the goodness that has happened to me the kindness the expertise the medical side everything but i also think that i'm I also think that it's given us all opportunities and, and you've got to make the best of it. And if I can share some good, like good was given to me, then that's what I want to do. Absolutely. This is a personal question. You don't need to answer it, but you touch on uh, having grown up with a religious faith. Did in addition to, you know, that love for your wife and daughters pushing you along through all that, did, did religious faith play a role in this as well? Yeah, it's, it's really interesting because I was raised a Catholic, you know, and um, very, very strict Catholic. And I was at a Benedictine monastery, a boarding school for many years. And and I would say that I sort of had a bit of a bit of a wobble for some years. You know, I'd covered so many conflicts around the Middle East that seemed to be based on religion. I was wondering, does established religion really play a role? Um, and I always went to church. I always found the peace in church. And I, and I love that. But, well, I know that what happened that day, and I, I generally try and avoid getting too spiritual about what happened to me, but I know that what happened that day was a miracle in its sense. I mean, I was in the death seat, and, and I've been an, an, an inch in any direction, I would be dead. And so many things happened. My daughter came to me, and whether that was an angel coming down to me or whether that was just, where do you go? Where does your mind go when everything else is taken away? Perhaps it just goes back to your family. But that happened to me, and I I do now think, and, and I said so many prayers throughout this too, when you on that train when I had nothing else again where do you sometimes go and I'd uh, please Lord please get me home take me home and so mm -hmm. yeah uh, I've got a 
interesting relationship with religion because I think so many religions out there, look, we're seeing it in Israel right now. Look what look what religion has done there. It's, it's incredible. So if you can, there's such a great in religion, but around the world, there's such negative in it some places too. So I, I've always struggled with that, but I'm a firm believer that there is something great out there that we can't explain. Tell me a little bit about things now. Uh, I've seen you reporting on, uh, even on Israel and Ukraine and you had an exclusive interview with Secretary of State Anthony Blinken. Uh, are you are you working now mostly from London? Well, yes. And, and like what happened a couple of months ago, I'd done a little bit of work here and there. And then I was still having operations, which have continued, you know, till I guess a couple of months ago, my last one. But what I said to Fox is I said, I'm recovery is done for me now. I've done a year and a half to, to recover. I've gone to every single physio. I've done everything I've had to do but you got to keep moving forward again. And I said, let's get back to work. I'd start doing little pieces at home. I'll start doing writing a little bit. And now I've just started a podcast. We're talking about a series because you've got to keep moving forward. You know, you've got to grab the opportunity. But I will say one thing. Recovery, as fascinating as it is, and I, I think I describe it well in the book, it's very boring. I mean, if I have to sit and talk to another physio telling me to move this or move that, so at some point I needed to keep moving forward. And that's what the work does. And that comes back to the sense that I think it's the best job in the world. So I was itching to get back to work because I love journalism. I think telling stories is amazing. So I guess I've come back to a place that I feel so happy in, and that, that's working. And you mentioned uh – before we started recording this morning that you're working uh, on a uh, series of podcasts, Saving Heroes. Can you mention something about that? It sounds fascinating. Mm -hmm. No, and we've just, we've recorded our first few. It'll come out on December the 4th. It's called uh, Searching for Heroes. It's it's just that. I mean, you know, something terrible happened to me, but I've tried to find something good in it and pass that on. And now I am talking to so many other people who have gone through similar things and spoken to someone who was a survivor of a mass shooting who ran towards the gunman. He brought him down. He saved so many lives. And it's been really difficult for him, but he's created something great out of it to spread that message on. And I love talking about that kind of arc. And there are so many stories out there of of amazing heroes, unsung heroes. And I think it makes our community stronger. The one thing about the news that I've done my whole career, the one thing that's changed for me is that I've spent 15 years telling the worst stories in the world. And yes, there are incredible moments of beauty and war and there's courage and there's family and they're great things, but they're sad. They're bad stories. And one thing that has changed is that I think we don't spend enough time talking about the great, the positive, the good, reminding ourselves that that binds us together. That's a backbone in America. And that's what we've got to tell as well as the bad. You've got to tell both sides. And so that's some of the work I'm doing now. I'm continuing covering geopolitics, but I also want to remind our viewers that there's great out there. There's good out there. We are better than we are. And so, yeah, my podcast and the series, which will come out next year, will be about reminding people about the good as well as the bad. Well, this has been great. I'm mindful of our time. I want to thank you. Uh, I especially mindful of uh, things in the Hall household with your your wife and your beautiful daughters and getting getting you free for dinner with them. Uh, your book is Saved, A War Reporter's Mission to Make It Home. Uh, I promise anyone listening that uh, read this book and you'll just, you won't be able to put it down. It's an incredible book, uh, incredible life and story you've shared with us. I appreciate it very much. Uh, God bless you. We look forward to seeing you at the uh, Journalism Awards dinner uh, very soon. Uh, Thank you so much for joining me today, Ben. Oh, it's a pleasure. Can I say how honored I am to be receiving the Ken Tomlinson Award as well and how honored I am to be coming to the dinner on Tuesday to meeting you in person because that's that's one of the great things. It's about passing it on. It's about talking about it, reminding other people. So thank you. Thank you for having me on. And yeah, I look forward to seeing you on Tuesday. 
Well, we will have a lot of young, aspiring journalists in, in the audience, so they need to hear your story. So thank you. Thanks. Thanks very much, Roger. Thank you for listening to the Liberty and Leadership Podcast. Please don't forget to subscribe, download, like, or share the show on Apple, Spotify, or YouTube, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. If you like this episode, I ask you to rate and review it. And if you have a comment or question for the show, please drop us an email at podcast at tfas.org. The Liberty and Leadership Podcast is produced at K-Global Studios in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Roger Ream, and until next time, show courage in things large and small.